Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. While travel is not recommended during the pandemic, there are many things yet to discover in our own area. Travis Swan Taylor is the author of 111 Places in Atlanta That You Must Not Miss. We'll hear from him later in the hour. First, Shakespeare wrote, Sweet are the uses of adversity. The adverse effects of stuttering, however, can devastate those suffering from the affliction, especially if they are children. Actor Emily Blunt overcame her stutter and is an advocate for the American Institute of Stuttering. She's been in Atlanta visiting with some children from the Institute and joins us now with clinic director for the Atlanta office of the AIS, Carl Herder. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. Emily, would you please tell us about your battle with stuttering when it began? Sure. I mean, stuttering is one of these things that there's a lot of misinformation about it. And I think usually people associate it with a nervous disposition or some psychological disorder. But it's actually genetic. It is neurological. It's biological. It runs very prominently in my family. So my grandfather, my uncle, my cousin, myself, we are all stutterers to varying degrees. But I first noticed it as a lot of children do. There's about 8% of uh, preschoolers who develop a stutter. And so I noticed it beginning around four or five I started to recognize that mine was really had its claws in me and was not lessening and was not leaving because most kids grow out of it. 75, 80% of kids will grow out of it. And then I think by the time I was about 10 or 11, it, it was at its most prominent. And it does impede you in so many ways. You can't even begin to imagine how much it impedes you because I think I felt even as a child, it misrepresented who I was and who I wanted to portray to the world. And that was really painful at times. Something that was 
especially interesting to me in reading the prep and Carl reading over what the Institute does is what you mentioned initially, that it is a neurological condition and not a psychological condition. So there are ways of treating it and managing it that aren't draconian or don't involve severe psychological therapy. But for a child or an adult who hasn't outgrown it, not to be aware of how common and how treatable it can be, can be damaging for life. In the movie The King's Speech, I think that the psychological aspect of it was brought out, even though Lionel Logue used a lot of positive reinforcement. I think some of the takeaway was this emphasis on an inferiority complex that King George VI had. What were your thoughts about that portrayal, about that depiction, which really opened a lot of people's eyes to the affliction? Carl, do you want to go first on that? Do you want to talk about... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, from what we know about Lionel Logue's relationship with the king, it was portrayed quite accurately in the movie, in what they did. They added a lot of the historically known treatment methods that were tried with people who stutter. And, you know, what I hold on to in that movie is that they had a beautiful relationship. The two of them had a wonderful connection and rapport. And even though what they were doing in therapy is not what we do now in therapy, what we know about therapy is that one of the major aspects that makes it useful and helpful is that relationship and that rapport. Uh, so trust. Yeah. Trust is important. Of course, that's not easy when you have the added layer of dealing with the king. But um, <laughs> fortunately, very few people have to deal with that. Emily mentioned about 11 years old. I read that something transformative occurred for you when you were 12. Sure. Well, I had this really extraordinary uh, teacher who I credit with being the first person who allowed for the record to stop skipping for me. And just an incredibly intuitive man and a kind man. And we were putting on a class play. And I'd always wanted to do a class play. And I'd always wanted to read my poem out in class. And I wanted to do all of those things. But I felt I couldn't or I felt people would laugh at me, so I didn't. But this teacher said to me, would you like to be in the class play? And I said, no, I definitely don't want to do that. And in fact, I don't think I was able to say that. So I just shook my head. And he said, well, I think you, sh I think you would be good because I've seen you outside and I've seen you messing around with your friends and doing silly voices and different accents. And he said, and I think you speak quite fluently when you do a silly voice. So why don't you just do it in a silly voice? which is sort of extraordinary coming from somebody who doesn't stutter to subconsciously understand that maybe when you do a different voice or you play somebody else, you're able to bypass it because you sort of leapfrog to different aspects or different 
parts of your brain. And whether it's a psychological freedom of freeing yourself from yourself and therefore being somebody else and speaking fluently, even in a silly accent, which I'm sure it was a dreadful Northern English accent that I put on at the time, <laughs> but it was just a revelation to me because it just, I had never had that experience where I could speak fluently and consistently. And so since then I've met through AIS and I drag every actor with a stutter that I meet along to our event, don't I Carl? And like everyone comes to our event. And a lot of them from Bruce Willis to Samuel L. Jackson, Harvey Keitel, Ed Sheeran had a stutter. I mean, but a lot of these actors have all said the same thing that when they're on screen, they don't stutter. Is it because there's safety in being someone else, not being someone else, but portraying someone else. There's safety in that role. Yes, I think I think that there is. I think that there's a freedom that comes with disassociating maybe how people look at you when you when you can disassociate from that. And I spoke to this incredible psychologist about it once, and he literally said, I think it's because you just you access a different part of your brain and when when you act when you sing, when you act, like you, it's, it's a completely different part of your brain that you're using. And because stuttering is neurological and that's the basis for it, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Carl, what causes the disorder? We know it's neurological, but are there certain ages that are more vulnerable when it appears? And, and how should one attack dealing with it? It usually pops up around the preschool ages. You know, around three is when it pops up most commonly, around when they get conversational. And like Emily pointed out, it is genetic. A lot of the time we believe that even when a child who is stuttering doesn't have any family history of stuttering, that even those children likely have some sort of genetic predisposition to experience it. And we, in specialists who work with people who stutter work with kids as young as two and three years old. We know that a lot of these kids can naturally outgrow it, but we don't have a good way of knowing which kids those are. I was stunned to read in, in your material from the Institute that there are only 200 specialists in the entire country, in all of the United States, who are certified or, or credentialed with dealing with stuttering? Why so few? Our field has some catching up to do. Yeah. <laughs> Board certification is new in our field, relatively new, and it's uh, an extensive process to go through to become a board certified specialist. And so that's part of the problem. Uh, but it's also become this little niche specialty area in our field because it is so different to understand the lived experience of stuttering when you compare it to all of the other things that we are certified to treat. Mm. Emily, I know that you came out, if you will, as a stutterer in 2009. That, yeah. was, that was a year before the King's speech. So I wondered what made you feel that was the right time? Well, to me, it's, it is just part of my story. It's part of what has built me as a person and I have nothing to be ashamed of with having. And I think often people 
people associate a lot of shame with stuttering because it is bullied. It is that there's so much intolerance towards people who have one. And I think a lot of children, a lot of adults are so held hostage by this. I used to think of my stutter as being like an imposter in my body. It just was misrepresenting who I was and who I wanted to portray to the world. And I was aware, and much more so once I met Carl and the gang at AIS, but that it was a widespread problem. And I didn't understand why no one talked about it. And I didn't understand why this condition and this disorder was bullied and others weren't. And why there's a free pass with a stutterer to humiliate them. And I think that just was bothering me. And I, fe and I felt very strong, this is part of my life story. This is part of my makeup. And struggle is great. We need it. We need it to overcome it. It's an important thing to struggle in life and to know that you can overcome those things. So I just have always wanted to speak very frankly about it because I remember how hard it was. I remember how painful it was. And I don't like the thought of other people living in pain and feeling rather lonely about it because I don't think you should feel alone if you're a stutterer because there's 60 million people around the world who have one. It's staggering. And by 2009, your career had taken off and it, it was very generous of you to talk about it publicly in hopes of helping others realize that being a stutterer doesn't mean you cannot be successful, much less speak beautifully. Well, abs absolutely. I mean, the fact that you can look at me, hopefully, and everyone from Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson and President-elect Joe Biden and anyone you want to look at and think, my goodness, that could be me. So you are not defined by your speech. You do not have to be defined by it. It is not who you are, it is part of who you are. Actor Emily Blunt and Carl Herder, the clinic director for the Atlanta Office of the American Institute for Stuttering. We'll return after a short break with more of that discussion. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's get back to more of my conversation with Carl Herder, the clinic director for the Atlanta Office of the American Institute for Stuttering and actor Emily Blunt. 
Emily is an advocate for the Institute because she too suffers from the affliction of stuttering. Emily Blunt is an award-winning actor who has starred in movies such as The Devil Wears Prada, A Quiet Place, and Mary Poppins with Lin-Manuel Miranda. Here, I asked if she has to take a special approach to speaking her lines when reading a new script. I'm so happy you asked that question because I think people look at me nowadays and they think, well, she doesn't have a stutter. You know, you, you sound great. You don't, you don't have one. But there are certain environments, I would say less a table read, where I still struggle is if I have to pitch an idea. So if someone says, well, what's your thought? And if I have to pitch a line change or a scene change, or I've rewritten the scene and I want to persuade people as to why I think it should be this, this way, that is when it flares up for me. That is the only environment I find myself in where it really flares. And I think it's the need to persuade, the pressure to persuade. Because as Carl and I have discussed, it's not that stuttering is drawn from having a nervous disposition. That's not the basis for it. But there are stress inducing situations that you find yourself that will magnify your stutter. So I think those are the times I find myself having an influency in how I speak. And I think it's because I feel enormous pressure. And the other time where I struggle is if I'm on the phone and I'm calling someone and they say, can I ask who's calling? And I have to say my name. Oh, Stutterers will attest there is no substitute for your name. So you cannot do the sort of vocabulary gymnastics that you're often having to do, substituting words left, right, and center so that you can sound fluent. You can't substitute your name. So it is, I would say, right, Carl, across the board, the thing that stutterers struggle with most. What's your name and where do you come from? And so I still, if I'm calling someone and they say, who's calling? I'll be like this. Emily Blunt, still. Oh. oh. Those are the only situations. But um, yeah. This speaks to what you were saying about stress being a trigger because there's nothing stressful about saying your name, except that goes back to your earliest years, to your essence as a child. And I think this is why it is so important for people who are well-known and have made sweet use of the adversity to talk about it. I have had the pleasure of interviewing Henry Winkler three or four times now. I think it's four times. And you may know he is a fierce advocate for dyslexia research and therapy. And he says to this day that he is very self-conscious in table reads, even after he had gained fame as playing the role of Fonzie on Happy Days. He was embarrassed at script reads because he had so much trouble with words. But like you, He had a teacher in high school who encouraged him to act because he was funny. 
and he loved making people laugh. And this really speaks to the importance of role models in a child's life. Absolutely, because I just always believe that a great teacher can change your life. And I, and I, I hear about this all the time, people who have had that one person a teacher or a coach or a family member who have literally changed the course of their lives by simply saying, I'm here and I understand you and hey, try this. And I think Carl offers that for so many of these kids and adults who come to see him in Atlanta and certainly when you were in New York as well, Carl, that you just need to feel that you have a support system, that you have a network. And I think and to feel that you're not alone. And that's what's so exciting about what AIS do is that they also do a lot of group sessions where kids can be with each other and see that they're not alone and see that they actually have a whole network of people who are just like them and understand every single single nuance of what they're experiencing every day. Well, tell us, please, if you can, about the meeting with children from the AIS here in Atlanta, what sort of stories did they share or did they feel confident enough to share with you? Often, if it doesn't, I guess, obviously run in the family, the parents are in such an anguished position because it's an anguished experience for parents to see your child go through something like this and not know how to help them. So I love speaking to parents as well because I think I can offer some kind of solace and some help, you know, to know that it's not going to define their children for their whole lives. And, and I love meeting the kids. And I think what's wonderful about AIS is that their whole technique is very confidence boosting. It's actually, they sort of do this reverse psychology, which I love where they don't say, oh, I stutter really badly. You say, oh, I stutter brilliantly. I'm like an amazing stutter. (laughs) So that you start to kind of wrap your arm around your stutter in a way that's more loving. And I think that is the, really the kind of pinnacle of and the key points and basis of what they do at AIS, that it's not about masking it. It's about wrapping your arms around the fact that this is a part of who you are and it will always be a part of who you are. And so the kids who I speak to at AIS, they're actually not shy because they've all been encouraged and emboldened by people like Amazing Carl and all the other clinicians working at AIS, they have been emboldened to speak and that you have a voice and you have something worth listening to. And they free up these kids' voices, whether or not they're fluent or not is irrelevant. It's that actually every kid I speak to at AIS, they come right up to you and they just talk at you and tell you exactly what they want. And that is so exciting that you've got kids who are no longer held hostage by this disorder. That is fantastic. Carl, what do you hope for AIS in the future? I mean, we have marvelous spokespeople. You have the list of famous stutterers, which is like, a who's who of <laughs> exciting people throughout the past two centuries. How can you reach more people who must learn about stuttering and how to treat it? Well, we'd like to establish more offices. Right now we have offices in New York and Atlanta, but what we're learning more and more through COVID actually is that we're able to work with people all over the place online. We were doing plenty of that 
pre-COVID, but we're doing 100% of it that way now. And so we want people to know that we can work with them just about wherever they are. If, if it's the little kids that we normally like to see in person, we end up working a lot more with the parents and kind of a consultative model. But we are actively working with people who stutter and their families throughout the country. And in the future, we'd also like to engage more with getting the word out about the teasing and bullying that can sometimes happen with stuttering. You know, Emily commented on it before, and it really is one of the problems that people have that still gets mocked and teased. Great. I think mostly because it's misunderstood. And, you know, one of the major issues with stuttering is that people who stutter do know what it's like to not stutter because stuttering is variable. It happens in one situation and not in the next. <laughs> and so, and that's where a lot of the shame and guilt and frustration comes from because it pops up when you least want it to pop up which is why we work so much on teaching people that it really can be okay to stutter. And by working on living that reality that stuttering is okay, we actually improve fluency. <laughs> so it, it is this, this opposite paradoxical issue that we're, we're teaching people about. And we, we'd like to continue to spread the word that this is a, a variable problem that comes and goes and while it is worsened by stress and anxiety, that is not the root cause of it. And we want people to know that people who stutter can do just about whatever they want if they have the courage to give themselves permission to speak freely. And honestly, it's, I'd be remiss if I didn't add that you know, President-elect Joe Biden proves that. Yes, I think that campaign, I don't know if you called it video, it was a moment on the trail when that young boy approached him was so emblematic of the kind of empathy our country needs. And also, dare I say, fortuitous for your cause, not at the expense of the boy, but to bring it to the fourth that look look at this you can be present in the united states too is that exploiting the little boy no, no. Braden harrington has become quite the celebrity in our circle good he's got another he's got a podcast episode or an interview you know every other day and his <laughs> his dad has become his agent <laughs> <laughs> And uh, he's, he is, I've, I've met him and, and we've done our own event that he participated on. And he is a tremendous young man who has a wonderful therapist who is teaching him to boldly be himself, to have a, a growth mindset about his ability to speak more freely as he grows. And we are so, so thankful that he was willing to to throw in with the campaign and demonstrate what letting your stuttering out can really look like. Well, I hope you all get invitations to the inaugural ball. <laughs> Before we go, Emily, I want to congratulate you on a new movie coming out next month. And I understand you will be speaking. Your character is Irish. He's Irish, yes. Is it still easier to speak in dialect or to speak with another accent than it yes. is? Really? 
Yeah, still, for sure. And I think I, I, I have a tendency, no matter what the part, to change how I speak. And I think it probably stems, even if I'm speaking in my own accent, I think I will usually approach it by trying to shift how I speak. So I'll be inspired by something or somebody or an essence of something that I've seen. And I still, to this day, whether I'm speaking in a British accent, American, Irish, whatever it is, I will try to kind of shape shift a little bit how I speak and how I move because I think there's a security there for me. That sort of chameleon-like desire is actually comes from a very emotional place for me because it was a real, it really freed me up when I was a kid. So I think I subconsciously or consciously am always changing how I speak, even if it's a subtle shift, you know. Well, your work is inspiring on screen and obviously off. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for being so tender and loving about this cause that means so much to Carl and I, because I think we need a lot of that, a lot of sensitivity, a lot of empathy and for people just to reach out and start to understand what it's about. So I appreciate so much how you've spoken about it today. Actor Emily Blunt is a dedicated advocate for the American Institute for Stuttering. She was joined by Carl Herder, the clinic director for the Atlanta office of the Institute. There will be more information about the Institute and treating the disorder on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Thanks for listening to City Lights on WABE Atlanta. The pandemic has certainly thrown us off kilter with regard to time and season. The July 4th Peachtree Road Race will be run on Thanksgiving Day. Well, virtually run. NPR's Peter Sagal didn't become a serious runner until he was in his early 40s. He has since completed at least 14 marathons, and he wrote the incomplete book of running. I spoke with Peter Sagal in 2018 after the book's release, which was partially inspired by another book about running. Jim Fix's book, The Complete Book of Running, which came out around 1978, was credited, I don't know how fairly, with the whole 70s running boom, because it was this book that said, if you just start running, (laughs) you will change your life. You'll improve your health and your weight and your fitness and your sex life and your diet, and you'll live longer and you'll be more attractive. It was a real manifesto. Yeah. Um, And it got a lot of people running. Uh, Of course, some of that effect uh, was lost when Mr. Fix uh, dropped dead uh, while running uh, at the age of 53, my age now. Um, And a lot of people said, see, you see what happens if you run? You shouldn't run. (laughs) Of course, you know. But that was not causal. No, no, it was not causal. It turns out Jim Fix had a congenital heart problem that he never... uh, Never got looked at because he refused to go to the doctor. But moving on, my book is not like that. And I wanted to contrast a little bit. This is not a manifesto. I do believe that running is good and people should do it. But it's a lot less instruction and exhortation and a lot more reflection and storytelling. It's really a memoir. 
It is, yeah. Who knew that I would ever have the material for a memoir? You've, you've got a very good one. Thank you, Lois. What do you believe is the greatest motivation for people to take up running? Uh, to get the hell out of here, <laughs> uh, and I, you know, that 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 is that's a metaphor, but it's a pretty, it's a pretty, you know, it's a thin one. It's close to reality. I, I think that one of the things that I note early on in the book is that a lot of people, including myself, turn to running seriously later in life. Meaning, uh, unlike say, oh, I don't know, tennis, it's not something you pick up as a child and continue through your life. It's something that a lot of people turn to after the age of thirty, let's say. Uh, if you look around the field at any local 10K, you'll see it, it tends older. Hmm. And I think the reason for that is that people start running when they feel a need to get away, to get moving, to make a change. And running has always, back to Jim Fix, uh, held this promise of transformation. Just start running and, and you're, you will leave your problems behind. That's not true, <laughs> it turns out, as I found out. But it certainly makes them a little different. Uh, it's it's a lot easier, in my view, to deal with something at a moderate pace outside than it is sitting in your couch. Yeah, and you address that at length. Oh, yes. Peter, you describe how you went from being a person who ran to being a runner. What, yeah. What's the difference? Uh, the, the best way I can put it is it's kind of a mindset. Uh, somebody who runs might be somebody who says, yeah, three days a week, I get up a little early and I go down to the gym and I get on a treadmill and I do three miles in the treadmill. And it's something you do uh, because you should. A runner is somebody who will go nuts if he or she hasn't been able to run for more than, say, two days in a row. And that's definitely me. Uh, if I can't run, I lose a little bit of sanity for every day <laughs> I'm I'm off my feet. And that really is maybe the uh, the difference. It's not certainly pace. It's not winning races, for goodness sake, because that's something I've never done. It's, it, it's whether or not it's something you do or part of who you are. Ah. And it's definitely uh, the latter in my case. So as a topic, why does running have what you call a narcissistic focus on the self. Well, it's because running for one thing is something most people pick up for self-improvement, i.e. nobody picks up running, especially later in life, to achieve athletic glory. You do it because you feel you need to make a change. There are things about yourself that you want to change. They could be as simple as losing weight, becoming more fit, becoming more alert, uh, improving your, and now I sound like Jim Fix, I know, improving <laughs> your diet and your sex life and your health and your outlook. But it, it's, it's something that you do because you want to change. The nature and limits of that change are something I've thought a lot about. Um, it, it's not a team sport. You know, although I do think that finding a running group is very important. So you're not doing it. Most people aren't starting to do it for solidarity and com camaraderie. I mean, let me put it this way. If if you're if you're lonely and you want to, like, get out there and make friends, you should probably join a recreational bowling league or a volleyball team, you know, down on the beach like here in Chicago. Running is something you do for yourself. NPR's Peter Sakel, host of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and author of the incomplete book of running. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Despite the pandemic, 
Actors Express has continued to offer captivating theater online. Artistic director Freddie Ashley joined me in early October to discuss the theater's transition to digital and talk about their one-woman show, Neat. We've been in constant stages of planning and scenario planning and contingency planning since the shutdown started back in March, wondering when we were going to be back to in-person programming. At one point, we thought we would actually be back by now, by the fall. And so we were trying to you know, create rolling contingency plans to, to meet that. But as numbers didn't bear that out, uh, we knew that we would need to uh, continue programming in a, in a virtual space so that artists and audiences can stay safe but still participate in some really cool theater. Tell us about Fulton County Arts and Culture, how they have helped you ensure this new digital initiative comes true. Well, it's been really great. They've really stepped up and have helped uh, a number of organizations and also individual artists do online programming through their virtual fund. And one of the things that's challenging about virtual programming is that there's not a lot of revenue involved with it in terms of ticket sales. And so to have a little support from the county to kind of had the risk up front has been very, very helpful and has really allowed us to be able to do it. I don't think we would have been able to do this otherwise. Mm. Let's talk about the programming. For the November offering by Charlene Woodard, Neat, this has special resonance for our community. Would would you tell us a bit about this story and and why it's especially appropriate at the time you are presenting it? Sure. It's a really moving play about a woman reflecting back on her favorite aunt and uh, her aunt who had suffered brain damage as a young child and uh, but had a very pure heart and a beautiful spirit and really defined for her what womanhood was all about, what it meant to be a woman and the kind of woman that she aspired to be. And it's a celebration of womanhood. It's a celebration of blackness. And, you know, one of the things I think is important when we're looking at stories with a Black-centered story, we're looking at stories that embrace joy and that embrace hope, that I think so often what people do is go to these stories that you know, inhabit these worlds of pain and oppression. Uh, and these stories are necessary, but we also need to see people celebrating and loving and thriving and um, coming into their own. And that's one of the things that I think is so powerful about NEAT and so empowering about NEAT, uh, that it is the celebration of a pure heart and of one woman's own personal story. Actors Express Artistic Director Freddie Ashley. Neat is running online through November 27th. More information on the play at Actors Express and how to view it can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Travel 
has drastically changed. In fact, almost disappeared during the pandemic, which is all the more reason to welcome the idea of 111 places in Atlanta that you must not miss. Travis Swan Taylor has compiled this guidebook, and he's with us now via Zoom. Travis, welcome to City Lights. Hi, Lois. Thank you for having me. When did you decide to create this field guide for Atlanta's most fascinating places? It was actually a few years ago. Um, It took about a year and a half to write the book, so it was pre-COVID, and it's part of a global series. My publisher is in Cologne, Germany, and they have guide uh, 111 places guidebooks for cities all over the world, and I got to do the one for Atlanta. Wonderful. What's significant about the number 111? That's a very good question. So Cologne, Germany, the city of Cologne, 11 is their lucky number. In fact, they have an annual festival on November 11th at 11.11 a.m. every year. So they wanted to use that for this book series, but 11 chapters isn't enough to make a whole book. So they added one to it and they can got 111. <laughs> I remember being in Cologne in November and hearing about the significance. Well, how did you decide upon which places in Atlanta to feature in your book? I have been writing, I've been the author of a travel blog or an Atlanta tourism blog, Wonderlust Atlanta. I've been doing that for 10 years. I had lived in Atlanta for 15 years, moved to DC for nine, and I've now been back 10 years. And when I first moved back, I started writing a blog just to re-familiarize myself with the city. And it was so much fun. I'm still doing it. So a lot of the places came from my blog, but then I also discovered a lot of new places. So would you tell us about your research process, the process of narrowing it down to highlighting these Atlanta landmarks and markers such as the Dogwood Bench in Piedmont Park, the Lions of Atlanta, etc. <laughs> yeah. the, the Lions are, is an interesting story. I'll get right to that. Um, but the research, I did a lot of research at the Keenan Research Center at the Atlanta History Center. Um, had access to newspapers.com, which goes back to the beginning of Atlanta. Did a lot of interviews, phone calls, emails, talked with other authors who've written books about Atlanta. You mentioned the Lions of Atlanta. They're the ones that stand guard over the Marriott Marquis. Four giant lions, they're gorgeous. And I started researching them for a blog post, and it took me four months to figure out, their, to find their name. Anyone I asked didn't know, and you know, every time you do a web search, it come, the Lion of Atlanta, it comes up, uh, the Lion and uh, Oakland Cemetery. Obviously, they're very different. Turns out they were commissioned by John Portman, who designed the Marriott Marquis. Uh, he commissioned a Belgian artist to create those lions. The reason I couldn't find them is because their name is plural, and they're called the Lions of Atlanta, but in French. So that would be Les Lions d'Atlanta? Atlanta, yes. What about the Japanese lantern? Love that one. So I was a docent at the garden for a number of years at the Atlanta Botanical Garden. That lantern was given to us by what would become our sister state um, in the early 1960s. And the garden wasn't formed until 1976. So that lantern has been there for a very long time. 
and in 2020, it's approximately 325 years old. So it already had was already an aged piece before it came to us. And then sometimes people say that it was gifted by our sister city, but we didn't have a sister city in Japan until 2005, I believe it was. So it was our sister state who gifted it to us. And what is the name of that state? It's uh, Kagoshima Prefecture. Ah. You mentioned your tourism blog, Wanderlust Atlanta. How does the blog differ from what's offered in this book? The blog is more my personal experience of a place, or it also includes events and people, where the book is more telling a story about a place. Interesting, fascinating, weird quirks about the places in Atlanta. Well, not only does this book offer beautiful places to photograph and explore, you also include locations like the Cook's Warehouse. Why do you want to include stores such as this kitchen repository? I love Cook's Warehouse. Um, it's in there because it is, you know, people think of it as you know, the mothership for all things kitchen and cooking, but it's also one of, if not the largest cooking school in Atlanta or in the Southeast, really. Well, I have to tell you, Travis, that I live not far from the Ansley Mall, and the Cook's Warehouse there has such an intimate neighborhood feel to it. You'd think it was an old-fashioned, one-of-a-kind place. Yeah, it, it totally is. Mary Moore, who, who is the founder he was on a trip in New York doing a cooking demonstration in one of the markets, and she was looking for a crepe pan, and she went to every kitchen store she could find and couldn't find one. And then a chef friend of hers took her to this warehouse-like place, and they had everything. And Mary's like, why don't we have one of those here in Atlanta? Two years later, she opened Cook's Warehouse. And it seems to carry on the feel of a city market where everybody's welcome. Yeah, absolutely. You couldn't include all of Atlanta's wonderful <laughs> restaurants, but there are many to choose from in this book. How did you begin the selection process? By trying to find the unique places, places or reasons that people might not think of to visit a place. Um, one of my favorites is my parents' basement, comic book bar. So they have comic books and arcade games and pinball. We've got a full bar, full restaurant, huge patio, lots of vegan options. It's just a really fun place to go. And um, now with restrictions and closings and people's reticence about frequenting restaurants that are open, what does this mean for readers? It means phone call or web search to see if they are open. Like Five Church Atlanta at Colony Square, they have they are open. They do social distancing. Masks are required if you're not seated. They have um, contactless menus, regular sanitizing. They do have a patio, open air patio upstairs as well. So the restaurants that are that are still open are going to great lengths to make sure that dining is safe as possible for us. Yeah. Yes. Buford Highway came to mind when thinking about the wealth, the rich array of international food 
we can find in Atlanta. Would you talk about how you compiled your favorite places into that one section? I've lived all over the country. I've lived in Europe. I love food. I'm a big time foodie. I wanted to showcase that we do have international food options and we're an international city. There's so much to see and do here and it's not just Southern culture. There's plenty of that, but also international culture. And that's something that non-Atlanta visitors might be surprised to find. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So all the more reason to highlight that. Travis, why did you want to include some controversial landmarks such as the Bronze Monument of General John Brown Gordon at the intersection of Washington Street Southwest and MLK Jr. Drive? Because there's no whole story that doesn't have good and bad. The only reason that I put that particular statue in there is because it's Atlanta's only equestrian statue. But if you'll see the subheading, the chapter title is Atlanta's only equestrian statue, the subtitle, for all the wrong reasons. Important to include that. Absolutely. And also on the Capitol grounds, dedicated just a few years ago, is a statue of Martin Luther King Jr., designed and sculpted by a local sculptor, Martin Daw. And it's the first African-American statue on the Capitol grounds. And there was some controversy about placing it on the back of the backside of the Capitol, but it does face Martin Luther King Jr. Drive and it faces the King Center, which is pretty cool. Yes. You will give a book talk tomorrow. What topics or places will you feature in that discussion? That talk is at the DeKalb History Center, a place that I love to go. Um, it's in the old courthouse, and that's a chapter in my book. Since it is specific to DeKalb County, I'll talk about places in the book that are DeKalb County, but I'll also talk about some other places because you know, Atlanta is a big place. And one of the cool things about this book is it has maps in the back. So if you find a place like the DeKalb um, History Center, you can go to the maps in the back and find other places that are nearby that are easy to get to. And you've been a resident of DeKalb County for 15 years. What were some new places you didn't know about before you started creating the guidebook? There were some really cool places that I had never been to. Actually, Hardy Ivy Park. One of the biggest surprises in writing the book were the connections between a lot of different places that are in the book. I went to included the Carnegie Education Pavilion in the book because it's in Hardy Ivy Park at the intersection of West Peachtree and Peachtree Street. It's made with the columns that were once part of the Carnegie Library, which was the South's first public library. The photo in the book has some folks in cosplay. So during Dragon Con every year, the Carnegie Pavilion is probably the most popular place to do cosplay photographs. And Those folks are members of Cosplay Volunteers of Atlanta. So they'll don their costumes, everything from Superman, Wonder Woman to Black Panther, and they'll go to children's hospitals or nonprofit events benefiting children. But also at that park, many, many years ago, was the Erskine Memorial Fountain, which was Atlanta's first public fountain. It was there for a few years and then moved to Grant Park in 1912 and just in recent years has been undergoing a restoration. And 
also at Hardy Ivy Park was the Samuel Spencer bronze that now stands in front of the Norfolk Southern building at Peachtree and 15th, but it was moved from downtown to Brookwood Amtrak station just down the line of Midtown and Buckhead. And now it's at Norfolk Southern on 15th and Peachtree. And Hardy Ivy Park was named after one of Atlanta's earliest settlers or pioneers. His cabin, if you go over to the Marriott Marquis, where we were talking about the lions earlier, inside the Marriott Marquis, there's a bar called Pulse. That's right about where his cabin was. So that one little spot, I mean, surprise after surprise after surprise has all these connections. Yeah. For Atlanta residents, how do you think this book will resonate? My publisher has this um, challenge. It's 111 Places Challenge. And it, was, it works for any of our books. But I have one person who is very actively doing the challenge. Um, she's lived in Atlanta for more than 50 years. And when she got the copy of the book, there were only five places she'd never been to. So, And she is so excited. In the challenge, you get a free book for any city at the milestone of 50 places, 75 places, and 111 places. And I've, I've only received very good feedback. It's a beautifully constructed book. And the cover it has a phoenix, which I love. And the color of the front of the book is the blue from the city of Atlanta flag. Ah. Now, for non-Atlantans, what do you hope visitors from other cities and states will take away from this field guide? I hope they'll take away that we're a very rich, interesting community, that we're not just Coca-Cola or the aquarium or other major tourist destinations. And those are amazing. I love them all. But there's so much more the city has to offer. There's interesting stories. There's fascinating histories. People that you would never know were part of Atlanta's history. We're a very complex, like I said, international city. Lots of amazing stories. Travis Swan Taylor is the author of 111 Places in Atlanta That You Must Not Miss. He'll give a virtual book talk at the DeKalb History Center tomorrow at noon. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to member-supported WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. 
help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.